RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 344, Arman Bashir. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. My name is Lau, Norman Lau. And my name is Champion, John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, your mission, should you choose to accept, is to sneak through Star Trek's morals, meanings, and messages using your skills as a highly trained special agent to avoid capture and certain death. And remember to have fun along the way. This week, from somewhere in the East 40s, and for your eyes only, we open the dossier on our man Bashir. I'll be right back with this week's top secret documents, providing the background on your mission. But first, Norman, if you would let everyone know how to reach us. Our contact information, if you choose to accept it, is Mission Log Pod, where you can find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, call us at 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com, and our show website is missionlogpodcast.com. And remember, if you or any member of your team is captured, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. Now, since we've dispensed with the traditional byplay, it's time for Agent Champions Trivia Debriefing. Well, thank you for that, Norman. This week, our man Bashir. The story is by Bob Gillen. Bob was a typist and assistant script coordinator on DS9, and lucky him, everybody loved his pitch for a Holosuite episode that was different from the tradition of TNG holodeck gone wrong episodes that had preceded it. Iris Stephen Bear and Renee Echeverria really felt like they had cracked a new code and went to work developing it right away. Problem was, where should the story be set? So you might be surprised to know that it was the technical premise that came first, not the hollow novel setting. It was Ronald D. Moore, a huge spy genre fan, who called upon his knowledge of Bond, The Man from Uncle, Wild Wild West, and everything else to write this up. Thus, he gets the teleplay credit. Uh, and actually, Norman, I'm a little surprised that this one didn't have a hand in it, or maybe it did, uncredited, by Peter Allen Fields. Of course, he wrote a lot of The Man from Uncle. He knows his stuff when it comes to a spy story. Now, this episode was directed by Wienrich Kolbe, of course, a veteran TNG and DS9 director. The last episode of his that we discussed was Through the Looking Glass. Yep, okay, here we go. Loads of Bond and other spy references in this episode. The title is pulled from Our Man Flint, in which James Coburn played Derek Flint, uh, followed by In Like Flint. Now, MGM at the time of this episode uh, apparently sent a strongly worded letter to the DS9 production, disapproving of the heavy uses of Bond imagery, iconography, and story plot points. So... You what? don't say. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Wow. But all in good fun, Norman. All in good fun. 
It only has to be 25% different. Oh, there, there you go, <laughs> legally. Uh, what would have been a running theme for Bashir gets limited to this one episode and just a, a shorter reference later on. Incidentally, look, Bond parodies are as old as Bond. Casino Royale of 1967, Operation Kid Brother, the Matt Howe movies, OSS 117. I mentioned Flint. Those are just tiny drops in a huge ocean of Bond parodies. It's hard to imagine why MGM took such offense. Imagine, you know, uh, that they would. And keep in mind that this episode was two years before the first Austin Powers movie, which just seemed to reopen those floodgates again. And don't forget, John, for folks, for folks. Oh, folks. Yeah, who, who, who could forget? Who could forget? I say that because they spell it with two Fs. With two Fs, yeah. Right. Yeah. So would it have been Bashir? The Bashir. <laughs> <laughs> now, I thought one way to go here in the trivia is that if this episode is an amalgam of the great spy stories that emerged right after World War II, well, let's talk about who James Bond was based on instead. There are so many places that claim to know. Uh, Ian Fleming himself and the experiences that he had during World War II. Uh, of course, he worked for the uh, Office of Naval Intelligence. Uh, Dusko Popov, a Serbian triple agent working for MI6. He was actually quite instrumental in disinformation campaigns leading up to the Normandy invasion. You had Sir William Stevenson, Canadian. You had Forrest Yeo Thomas, British, captured by the Nazis, escaped concentration camp, reported directly to Winston Churchill. And there's actually documentary evidence that Fleming knew of his story during World War II. So he is a great contender. But here's the thing. Mm -hmm. There are so many great contenders of who and what stories influenced the character James Bond. Oh, I don't know. It's sort of like everybody claiming that they invented the French dip sandwich. Although, of course, we know it was Philippe's the original. I mean, come on. Couldn't be anything else. Interesting production schedule on this. Took longer to shoot this episode than just about any other episode of DS9. Nine days instead of the usual six or seven it was a long shoot. There were many complicated setups. One of the things that I found interesting, they use real glass in that stunt in the teaser, uh, tempered glass. But normally you'd use candy glass uh, when you're breaking a bottle over somebody's head. But in that case, it just didn't break right. So they used real glass and it is a magnificent stunt. You had Emmy nominations for this episode, hairstyling and music composition. So I have to give a shout out here to Jay Chataway, who clearly did his homework crafting an homage to John Barry and other great spy genre composers, even managing to sneak in some riffs on the DS9 theme, but with a big, brassy, Bond-appropriate sound. Now let's talk about guest stars. Well, really, this is an episode that has an excuse to show off our main cast in versions that aren't quite themselves. Lots of camera time for Andy Robinson as Garrick, and we do have Kenneth Marshall again here as Eddington. That doesn't mean we are entirely without some guest players, though. There are two more women in Agent Bashir's Holonova life. Caprice, we meet early on in the episode. She is played by Melissa Young, and you may have caught her in recurring roles on Beverly Hills 90210 or Growing Pains, among others. Her professional on-screen credits stop in 2010. 
Then we have Bashir's personal valet, the cleverly named Mona Loves It, played by the also cleverly named Marcy Brickhouse. Some well-known TV shows pop up in Marcy's resume as well. Guest roles on Boy Meets World, Parker Lewis Can't Lose, and Married with Children. For both Melissa and Marcy, this is their only Star Trek appearance. I would be remiss if I just didn't take this opportunity as a James Bond fan to quote Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> on on his private jet when gold, uh, when James Bond comes to mm-hmm. after being knocked out by odd job. Yep. He's staring down the face of a forty five. Honor Blackman says, My name is Pussy Galore. And <laughs> Sean Connery just so aptly responds with I must be dreaming. <laughs> Welcome agents to the Mission Log Affair. Enclosed in this recap you will find all the details you need to complete your mission. Please see the quartermaster on your way out. Prologue. Secret agent Julian Bashir has successfully completed another mission by knocking the eyepatch-wearing thug through a plate glass wall and is ready to uh, celebrate with a bottle of champagne and the blonde in this Paris nightclub. The thug rises, though, and Agent Bashir is lucky enough to catch a glimpse of the reflection in the bottle of forty-five Dom, then using the pressure behind the cork to knock out his foe for good this time. Time to go in for that celebratory kiss again, when this time the familiar voice of Garrick interrupts the fun. Of course, the whole thing is in a hollow suite, but this is the real Garrick interrupting, the real Bashir living out his fantasy. Not only rude, but illegal, the doctor points out. It's a new hollow novel. Bashir has been quiet about it, but Garrick is awfully pushy, wanting to see this side of the doctor and play along. Grudgingly, Bashir accepts, just as his female companion exits. Act 1. The place? Kowloon. The year? 1964. Bashir's hollow novel makes him a 1960s Cold War gentleman spy, complete with bachelor apartment, weapons cabinet, and a beautiful valet named Mona Lovesit. Garrick is surprised, musing that he must have joined the wrong intelligence agency. Back in the real world, the runabout Orinoco is returning from a conference with Cisco, Dax, O'Brien, Kira, and Worf, only to discover that their warp core has been sabotaged. With only seconds to spare, Eddington beams the crew into DS9 ops, but something goes horribly wrong. In an explosion, the five senior staff are gone. Act 2. So, this is bad. Eddington acts quickly to have the computer save the transporter patterns of the crew somewhere, anywhere, until they can resolve the problem. The computer does exactly that, buying Eddington and Odo some time to work on a solution— So where did the physical and neural patterns of the crew go? Cut to Bashir's novel, where he is visited by Colonel Anastasia Komananov, the spitting image of Major Kira. In fact, he and Garrick think she is Major Kira, but she's definitely not. She's the image of Kira, but with the mind and personality of one of the novel characters. Eddington overcomes, explains in time for Julian to get it that the computer has stored the physical patterns of the crew in the holosuite memory, and he cannot, under any circumstance, leave or shut it down at the risk of losing them forever. 
convenient for the story, Anastasia informs Bashir that her government has detected a series of artificially occurring earthquakes. They'll have to work together to find out who's responsible for them. The only clue is that a renowned seismologist, Honey Bear, went missing shortly before an earthquake struck New York City. The dossier reveals Honey Bear is the spitting image of Dax, which means she, or at least her transporter pattern, is in danger of being erased forever if Agent Bashir doesn't find her. Mona loves it appears at the door with Bashir's freshly pressed dinner jacket, but she falls face forward with a knife in her back. Enter a group of thugs, led by an eyepatch-wearing henchman looking less like he did earlier, but now the spitting image of Chief O'Brien. Garrick calls for him, but Bashir correctly identifies who he is in the hollow novel, Falcon. Act 3. With Julian at gunpoint, Anastasia asks Falcon if she can have just one last kiss with the British agent. He allows it, but Anna has a secret weapon, her earring, which explodes when Julian throws it at the thugs. A fight ensues, and with Falcon overpowered, Anna says Julian should finish the job and kill him. He can't, though. Chief O'Brien's pattern would be erased. What's more, in the melee, we see that Holosuite's safeties are off, which means Bashir and Garrick can also be hurt or killed. All of that goes right over Anna, a hollow novel character's head. Garrick chimes in, though, Julian may eventually have to kill someone trying to kill him if others, like Dax, are to live. That's the real spy game. Anna has a lead. The kidnapped experts, including Honey Bear, are likely being coordinated by Dr. Noah. They'll start at his club in Paris. Just outside the hollow suite, Eddington, Odo, Quark, and Rom, who's been making improvised modifications and upgrades to the hollow suite over the years, figure out the scope of their problem. The physical patterns of the missing crew are indeed there, but brain patterns are stored at a quantum level, something much too complicated for a holosuite. Those patterns are stored literally everywhere else, in every nook and cranny of every other system on DS9. Their job is to re-merge those elements to save Cisco and the others, and the best way to do that will be to utilize the independent power and transporter system on board Defiant. In the ritzy Club Ingenue in Paris, Agent Bashir, Garrick, and Anastasia are greeted by Worf. Only it's not Worf, it's Duchamp, representing Dr. Noah. Bashir, undercover as geologist Patrick Merriweather, ponies up the five million franc admittance fee to see Dr. Noah by cleaning out Duchamp in a game of Baccarat. Duchamp upholds his end of the bargain, but not before knocking out the three interlopers with a puff from his sleep-inducing cigar. When they awaken, Bashir, Anna, and Garrick find themselves in an opulent mountain hideaway, greeted by Benjamin Sisko as Dr. Hippocrates Noah. Act 4. It is Act 4, which means it is precisely the time that the bad guys spell out his plan for world domination. Dr. Noah, from this place on Mount Everest, plans to deploy a series of ground-penetrating lasers around the Earth, causing quakes that will kill every human and ultimately release enough lava to shrink the Earth's surface area. Everest will become an island, the home base for a new, superior human race based on the finest minds he's assembled, 
like Dr. Honey Bear, who is apparently one of his chief scientists. And, oh yeah, uh, Falcon, who is there to do henchman things. With the master plan revealed, the next step is obvious. Dr. Noah is keeping Anna for himself. But he's set up an appropriately poetic and painful demise for Bashir and Garrick, strapped to the laser that will start blasting through the Earth's crust, the two spies now have a front-row seat to what will be a room filling with lava in just five minutes. Act 5. With time running out, Garrick is ready to end the program, regardless of what it will do to the five crew members whose patterns are trapped in computer memory. As they argue, Honey Bear walks in to give a last look at the laser system, and Julian sees an opportunity. Mustering all his charm... He says he really appreciates her for the woman she is and just wants to see her without her glasses on. Oh, and if she could only let her hair down. There, that's the last image of her that he wants in his mind before he dies. She turns to leave, but comes back with a kiss and a key to unlock the cuffs that have kept Bashir and Garrick captive. As the laser starts up, Bashir and Garrick run through the caves. Bashir is determined to save his friends, while Garrick has had enough. He's ready to end the program and save himself. If there's something he learned in his years with the Obsidian Order, it was how to stay alive, when to walk away. When he does call for the computer to show an exit, though, Bashir surprises him by pulling his weapon and actually shooting Garrick in the neck, Shocking, but only superficially wounding him. Maybe this moment has even regrown some respect Garrick has for Bashir. Onward to find their friends. In Dr. Noah's lair, Bashir regains the upper hand for a second. He frees Anna, has Noah in the crosshairs, but Duchamp and Falcon burst in to even the odds. Now with the bad guys having the upper hand again, it's time for Dr. Noah to speechify a little and get this close to firing the rest of his lasers. All this while, Eddington tells Bashir that they will be ready to attempt a beam out in around two minutes. Time to stall. Bashir tries to meet Noah on his own turf. Oh, sure, he was going to save the world, but maybe Noah is right. Maybe humanity has grown lazy and decadent. Maybe the planet needs to be purged. Echoing Garrick, Bashir says he's learned in his years of experience when to walk away. Dr. Noah bought it. For a second. But he's still looking forward to killing Bashir. And as Bashir walks coolly, calmly toward Noah's control panel, he activates the rest of the lasers himself, destroying the world. Well played, but Dr. Noah still intends to kill Agent Bashir, and as he takes aim to do so, the transporter goes into action. The DS9 crew are reintegrated and find themselves confused, standing on the transporter pad of the Defiant. The only people left in Agent Bashir's world are Bashir and Garrick, and it looks like Garrick is impressed with Bashir's novel approach to win by destroying the world. The two plan to have lunch tomorrow, but not at the replimat as usual, this time at Bashir's place in Hong Kong. The end. That was absolutely riveting, Agent <laughs> Champion. The only thing I would like to add to mm. that is that Bashir has a powerful weapon 
he charges a million, million. latinum a shot. <laughs> nice. And yeah, agent I, second to none, the man with the phaser gun. I, I love the bit where, you know, he reaches into the shoe. So he's mm-hmm. doing a get smart bit totally. uh, to assemble the weapon with a, a pen, which, of course, is man with the golden gun. But mm-hmm. also uh, the, the pen used in man from uncle as the communicator. I mean, oh. So many, like every frame of this, you could go through and reference. You really could. But nice. And, and should I uh, thank you for the assignment, N? Is that, is that who I should call you from now on? N? N is good. Okay. N is good. I like that. <laughs> so right off the bat here for uh, for this segment, let's not worry about technical problems. I mean, uh, the transporter has less built-in memory than a holodeck, and uh, uh, and the holodeck loses information when you shut it down. That just seems like a very poor use of a computer system. We just have to dispatch with computer stuff right out of the gate. So you're saying that the RAM would dissipate if it's shut down, so ROM fixes the RAM. Oh, ROM fixed the RAM. Yeah, that's good. Mom fix the RAM. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Mm-hmm. Very good. With a, with a spatula. With, with, as I do with my computer often. Hey, and finally, finally, after seven years of TNG and into our fourth year of DS9, we learned that it is illegal to just walk into someone's holodeck fantasy. So technically, <laughs> all the way back in Encounter at Farpoint, Riker illegally walked into Data, who was trying to figure out how to whistle. Yes. It yes. all makes sense now. Yeah. yeah. I, robot rights. Come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, of course, we hadn't established that. We hadn't gotten to measure of a man yet. <laughs> but but yeah, so many times people just walk in on others' holodeck fantasies. And, and now we know you can't do that. Also, a mm-hmm. uh, culinary note here, 1945 Dom Perignon. If you were drinking that in 1964, there's a good chance that you were drinking vinegar. I think so. Yeah. 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 Really, a, even a, a vintage year, like a non-vintage champagne, Five, eight years, maybe at the most, a vintage year champagne, 12, maybe, is the outside there. So I'm sorry, man. Maybe they've lost their taste for champagne in the 24th century. I do love, though, uh, Garrick pointing out that the nightclub in Paris is on the other side of the planet from Caldoun. <laughs> I forgive everything in this episode because of Garrick. Everything. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Right? Yeah, pretty much. You have to. Because how awesome was it? That he was wardrobed with a mock turtleneck. <laughs> that a Cardassian neck with a mock turtleneck is the greatest wardrobe choice ever. Yes. He looks magnificent. And he well, the the tuxedo shirt looks a bit wide on him anyway. And I think I remember reading somewhere that um for wardrobe, Bob Blackman is doing it at this point. He loved being able to outfit people in these vintage looks. But he was like, okay, for Garrick, you've got an actor with a 44-inch chest and a 22-inch neck when <laughs> he's got the makeup on. But he's magnificent. Andy mm-hmm. Robinson is just fantastic. And, and what a great pretense to have him there in this. And, and I love him pointing out that he joined the wrong intelligence service after seeing, again, what is ridiculous by a real-world estimation of what a spy does living this ostentatious lifestyle. Well, it's kind of like having Felix Leiter along for the ride. Yeah, totally. Because, you know, the CIA isn't putting up any kind of special funding for Felix Leiter or any of his agents. But all of a sudden, James Bond has, he has the cool clothes, the car, all the accoutrement. And Felix Slater's like, what do I got? I know. Nothing. Thanks, CIA. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yes, it's absolutely perfect. Unless you're Jack Lord, because Jack Lord was phenomenal. Uh, he was later. great, man. I mean, look, I'm a David Hedison fan too. I, I'm 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 a fan of most of the Felixes, but yeah, but but Jack Lord had it going on. He had the coolest sunglasses of any Felix ever. Lighter. Yeah. Yes. Hey, out of all of the uh, drama in this, we uh, we have to say goodbye to an old friend in this episode. The Orinoco runabout destroyed by the true way the Cardassian terrorists. Yeah. So I have a little bit. This is kind of like my little critique of this episode. Mm-hmm. When you fly with your entire command staff, it's a good thing that you have them because, you know, you have the authority of your entire command staff for yep. delegations and for negotiations. Right. But something goes like tragically wrong. It's like Air Force One having the entire cabinet with the president on it. So, of course, the true way would figure out that their passenger manifest had everybody of the command staff on it. Right. So let's, yeah, let's destroy it and literally cripple Deep Space Nine in the process. And and when they got on board or maybe when they got a minute away from there, you think that Cisco at any point says, uh, hey, chief, could you just go make sure that we're not sabotaged? We did just come from a thing, and it's all these important people. Could you just go check, please? Or sabotaged, which would be worse. That is worse. Sabotage, definitely worse than sabotage, for sure. sure. Also, before I forget, you also get plus one point this week for melee in your recap. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you that uh, I needed to do a callback to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So look, Norman, something that you and I talked about before, and we could probably just do through this entire episode— is naming every single reference. Um, and I think that would be, uh, it would be a tough exercise. It would sort of go against the mission log format to do that. Cause it's not what the show is about. It's not all mission log isn't all trivia. We got to talk about ideas and themes and, and deep thoughts here, mm-hmm. but there's some fun stuff. And, and just, uh, I, I think we should go through some favorites. I love Bashir. They reference uh, that he had a parachute uh, that he, you know, fell from the sky, but then there's a submarine waiting for him. Definitely a spy who loved me with that truly the greatest opening stunt of any Bond movie, probably any movie ever. But we've also seen Bond fall without a shoot in uh, Moonraker and uh, do action scenes on or outside of airplanes and other movies. So again, just, just wrapping up this whole Bond uh, uh, sort of zeitgeist, you know, they're really capturing all of it. Oh, and uh, I love a good Nehru jacket. Actually, I have two. And of course, Dr. Noah is a riff on Dr. No, but Dr. Noah was the name of the riff on Dr. No in Casino Royale in 1967. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, you get a little too close to home there. And of course, he's doing what other Bond villains have wanted to do before, wipe out the undesirable population of Earth and start fresh with a new master race. Uh, see also Hugo Drax, Ernst Blofeld, Karl Stromberg. Uh, oh, oh, and uh, Hitler. I uh, wanted to mention that one because uh, let's not forget the roots of where all this Cold War interest and espionage came from and sort of what defined the latter half of the 20th century. Well, don't forget Dr. Evil. I mean, sorry, Dr. Evil. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That famous one. Very important that we do not forget Dr. Evil. And, uh, of course, just all the lifestyle and design trappings are there. Tuxedos, champagne, the mid-century apartment and nightclub, the Baccarat table, and and Julian winning five million francs because, of course, 
he can. Um, mm-hmm. I, I forgot somebody who had emailed me and said that they expected if they came to my apartment that I would have that that rotating wall with the the bed with the bar I on the other side. I love that. I oh know, and and whoever, I can't remember who said that, but thank you for thinking that of me. Uh, I'm yeah. working on it. I wrote this note. Uh, I, I mentally wrote it. I didn't put it down in our notes. But who actually contracts the workers to build gigantic walls? that hide gigantic computers in these secret layers. Yes. And then, what, do they just off them? Because you're like, well, you obviously know all of my secrets, so right. yeah, thanks for building it. Here's your payment, like right. I promised. And, oh, by the way, all of your money is laced with some type of tactile poison. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> exactly. So, And that's even on a small scale. You go to a big scale, and you got, you know, uh, Blofeld in the volcano cave from uh, uh, You Only Live Twice, I mean, Stromberg. That, well, uh, uh, Blofeld is in the volcano cave and you only live twice. Stromberg is in Atlantis in uh, Spy Who Loved Me. And, and yeah, again, you'd have to have just an army of people working on this for mm. years. And uh, uh, yeah, what do you do? You, you got to kill them. You, you have, have to. to. Yeah. You, you feed them to um, Barracuda or yeah. uh, sea bass. Yep, so, oh, you know, but like ill-tempered sea bass. Ill-tempered sea bass, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, they do a lot of really good things with the trappings and stuff, but mm-hmm. there's a really, really good shot of Bashir playing Baccarat, but he didn't wear a vintage-style Omega or Rolex oh. on the close-up. And there was a close-up yeah. on his wrist, and I was like, oh. Yeah. Because you and I are both horology fans. Yes, and yes. And that is a missed opportunity, for yeah. sure, for mm-hmm. sure. But uh, you do have uh, Walther PPK in there for Bashir, uh, and you got a, a P38 in there as well, which uh, used a lot in spy movies, and that, that was the basis of the Uncle Gun and Men from Uncle. So, you know, all this hardware looked correct. The only thing that it's still a groaner, and obviously they did it for groaner reasons, was using some of the more misogynistic naming conventions, sure. you know, in the episode, you know, with uh, Mona, you know, loves, <laughs> I can't even say that out loud, <laughs> you know, because you had, you know, Pussy Galore, yeah. Honey Rider, yeah. Xenia on a top, on yep. top, yep. you know, uh, Holly Goodhead, yep. uh, th- you know, they're it's just funny that they kind of went that direction with, you know, Star Trek being the progressive show that it is, and they didn't write around it. They went for it, which I respect, but sure. I'm sure that, you know, as a Star Trek show, there was a lot of eye rolling going on. Oh, yeah. Oh, there, there had bear. to be. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they had to have fun doing that and just owning it. Just have it. Sure, and, you have to. Yeah, and, and perfect that Nana is doing the bad Russian accent. Here. Yeah. Like, Nana is a terrific actor. I'm sure that she could do a solid Russian accent, uh, although it was very difficult to do. But here she has to have a bad Russian accent. You, you know, the Bond films didn't have Russians playing a Bond foil when we had Barbara Bach or uh, mm-hmm. Daniela Bianchi. So that's just sort of the way that it happens, yeah. you know. Famke um, Jansen in Goldeneye. Famke Jansen, yeah. 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 Uh, also Star Trek. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, the perfect mate uh, Mm -hmm. for Picard. Um, But, you know, I I think one of my favorite things here is just the send-off that we get where we we know that Julian Bashir will return, just like at the end of a Bond movie, you have James Bond will return. I never joke about my work, double O Norman. 
We'll get right back to our man Bashir. But first, a thank you to you, our Patreon supporters from patreon.com slash mission log. If you'd like to support this show directly, please join us at patreon.com slash mission log. Hey, Norman, we've got something fun that we've been cooking up for our Patreon supporters. The first in what we think will be many exclusive and casual hangouts. So we'll pick different times on different days and try to accommodate people who live in the myriad of time zones <laughs> that mm-hmm. catch yeah. Mission Log and uh, and do something really personal, long form, not like the Mission Log live show, uh, a little deeper and uh, obviously more personal than just answering emails. But you're really the person who, uh, who came up with the idea and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Well, when I first came onto the network, one of the things I wanted to do was take a look at what we were doing for our Patreon subscribers, because as you know, I'm a big fan of what you do for us, all of you who are donating your hard-earned money to fund our show. And I said, self, wouldn't it be great if we gave the listeners kind of like this safe roundtable format to talk about a variety of topics? We'll have a main topic. And yes, sometimes it will lean towards the Star Trek side. But I always wanted to have or give the ability for all of you just to be able to round table with us with a drink, kick up your feet, and just talk about stuff. Because we're all fans of different things. Obviously, you know that John and I are fans of a variety of different fandoms. And it's just a chance to be able to get to know you and to hear you and talk to us. And I think that that's something that needs to be established a little bit more with, with podcast entertainment just being able to talk to the people that you record for and those who listen to you. And I think that this is a great opportunity for us. So thank you to everybody who has uh, already joined, who's been commenting and uh, conversing with us there. We thank you so much. Uh, Remember, you'll be able to join the Hangout by joining us at Patreon at all donor levels. Uh, You also get our behind-the-scenes videos and other fun stuff coming soon. That is all, again, at patreon.com slash missionlog. Thank you again so much to everybody who has joined us there. All right, Norman. So I, I said earlier in the show that, you know, it would be a mistake, I think, to just go through and list everything that's in the show. Because really, <laughs> you know, that that is one of the cool things about this episode is just that it, it is this homage that is so well done. And I wanted to get it out there that it was before Austin Powers, because I think then Austin Powers was really one of the deepest dives when it came to a spy genre parody. Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. It holds up on its own. But when you really look at it for all the little details that they're nailing in there, uh, it just makes it that much better. But Mission Log is different. Mission Log is a show about ideas. And this episode, as fun and frivolous and light as it is, had me thinking about some ideas. So I'll kind of get us started here. And I'm I'm curious to see where you and I can go with this. You know, the the first thing that really struck me is just thinking kind of holistically about the spy genre, pop culture in that sweet spot of the 1960s, specifically 1964, when our pop culture was very different from what it is now. And I don't mean to romanticize it, because there are good and bad things about that. Aesthetically, it's definitely my jam. I do not care what you think, Garrick, about the design choices that were made. (laughs) (laughs) But I think there's something so interesting about this period, 1964, that it is right after 
and right before so much changed. It is after World War II. It is after the conservative crush of the 1950s. But it is before the explosion of youth culture. It's before, I mean, depending on the date here, because you know it could be early 64, it's before the Beatles appearing on The Ed Sullivan Show. And it's before then most pop culture media starts to get aimed at this younger and younger and younger audience. And certainly it's well before what we have now, which is the this sort of very free market of ideas where through the internet, everybody has a voice all the time. And it also gets very reactionary. Mm-hmm. So there's something that's absolutely fascinating about where you set this because you're not just talking about what was popular at the time. You're also talking about a time when what we expected out of our entertainment was very different. And this episode had me thinking about fandom. So the spy genre is an escape, just like Star Trek is. And there are some good ideas to be found along the way. You know, it's not all just completely fluff. And the the fantasy world that's crafted here in this episode is this mishmash of spy themes and tropes. And it it drives home for me a conversation that I have with a lot of my Bond-loving friends that Bond, James Bond, isn't just a series of books or films, that it is a pop culture force that actually includes every parody, every spinoff, every reference, and I think of Star Trek in exactly the same way. Star Trek is not a TV show, and it's not TV show spinoffs or movies, and it's not just the stories in the novels or the comics. Star Trek, when you say the words Star Trek, it is also the parodies, and it is also Shatner saying, get a life on Saturday Night Live, Mm -hmm. and it's fan films, and it's every newspaper article that has ever used phrases like, beam me up, Scotty, or pointed out a piece of technology saying that it sounds like, oh, it, it, it looks like it came right out of Star Trek. Hey, now that's a Star Trek. Yeah, now that's a Star <laughs> Trek, right? <laughs> even, though, even though part of that audience reading that or hearing that reference has never seen an episode of Star Trek. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, it, it's a similar thing with Bond or, or, or you know, the spy genre as well. So here you have this story within a story that combines two of the biggest pop culture phenomena of the past century. And it speaks to both fandoms in this great way, and I hope at the same time. And it just sort of reminds us that it's, it's all just a game. It's just some light fun. But at the same time, you can speak to important issues in your entertainment. You know, art doesn't exist in a vacuum. While you can take the ideas seriously, you can't take the play, the the action of it too seriously. I like what you said here about this era of of pop culture before the pop culture explosion of the late 1960s because there mm-hmm. is kind of an era of innocence post World War II and maybe even post the Korean War and before obviously the Vietnam War yeah. and kind of like the, the disenfranchisement of the youth of that era because they were getting drafted or dodging drafts. They were getting oppressed by the man the rise of the Black Panther Party, a lot of these very serious movements that were happening, especially in the late 1960s and early 1970s. So you have this very small pocket of pure entertainment that 
it just emulates an innocence, something that you can aspire to, especially in the spy genre, because James Bond is more than, like you said, a series of novels or movies. It's a lifestyle choice for some people. Mm -hmm. When I was younger, I worked in a wine cellar. And the reason why I chose a wine cellar over, say, just working at the grocery store or the video store is because there was a man there that I knew. His name was George. Great guy. And he taught me how to taste. And he asked me, why did you want to do this? And I said, because I'm a James Bond fan and I want to know the proper, the proper manner of tasting wine and understanding what I'm tasting because there's that great commercial that probably has stuck with everybody and it was a Pepsi commercial where the two Bond-style characters, Bond and obviously a villain, were talking about how much they know things. Like, the tea is Darjeeling, but the water is from a spring in Tibet. You know, right. uh, 98 uh, or uh, 68 Roth uh, Montrachet picked by a man with one leg. And then all of a sudden, they couldn't get, like, the Dr. Pepper versus Dr. Pepper Light or something about right. that. You know? Right, That's how it permeates so deeply into modern culture. And what I like about how they handled this episode they didn't go to a modernized Bond. They didn't go to, yes. say, like the, the 1980s Roger Moore Bond or, and this is, um, or even the, the Timothy Dalton mid-80s Bond like with mm-hmm. Living Daylights and, and um, yeah. uh, License to Kill. And this was before uh, uh, Pierce Brosnan, just before Pierce Brosnan came on the scene right. uh, with Goldeneye. So they picked the most iconic version of that era, and that was Connery's version, arguably the most yeah. iconic. But because there was a sense of play they, obviously there was a sense of misogynistic play looking at it now sure but that was of the time you can't take the behavior and the cultural trappings out of history and still call it history you have to accept it kind of warts and all yeah but that being said there is a really nice sense of i guess a, a, of a focus that you don't get to see anymore and maybe that's why people still uh, they, they still you know, carry a torch for the original series today because in 1966 to 1969, it was just a different, simpler time for science fiction pop culture. It wasn't as convoluted or condensed or dense or fueled by internet rage. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. Things could be delivered slowly over time to build some anticipation and to digest a, a story and an idea and not simply move on to the next thing every 10 minutes. Also not tempered by internet rage, which I think is uh, a dangerous thing. I read the comments sometimes. But there, there's also something about this period that maybe as I get older, it becomes more and more interesting to me because, uh, and I, I spoke about this one time before, I, I want to say maybe on 602 Club, that this is sort of the last gasp of adult culture. So the, this is, and yes, the James Bond movies are fantasy and they're aimed at an audience that certainly it, it spoke to 8, 10, 12-year-old boys, but it also spoke to adult men and women who were in the audience too. Man from Uncle, wildly popular among 12-year-old boys, but also a popular primetime network show with an adult audience. So this is one of those rare times then, unlike getting into the 80s, the 90s and beyond, where you have a hugely fractured marketplace and a lot of content that is just solely driven to the 13-year-old audience, the 16-year-old audience, the 19-year-old audience. And that's it. 
you know, and, and it's there to get that opening weekend dollar and then disappear. Well, that's, maybe, you know, maybe yeah. come back with a sequel. But this is a time where what's cool is listening to jazz and drinking martinis and living an adult life, something that kids might aspire to. And I'm not saying aspire to drink martinis, although I do enjoy them. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I'm not saying, you know, but it's an aspirational lifestyle. It's an aspirational character. This isn't just sort of like chew it up and spit it out. There was a lot more optimism built into that entertainment overall, Yeah, I think. Just a more optimistic look at good versus evil, the good guy versus the bad guy. But also, at least when it comes to the James Bond era, there has something to do with being able to emulate the culture of James Bond. When I was younger, and maybe it's the same for you too and our listeners out there, when I watched the James Bond movie, it took me to Tokyo. It took yeah. me to the Far East. You know, It took me to all different... It took me to the moon, yeah, right, Rager. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. they had laser beam. They were having a laser beam fight in space. I mean, yeah. who, who does that, right? It yeah. took me to Zurich uh, or Zermatt, you know, yeah. with Christopher <laughs> Walken. Piz Gloria, baby. Piz Gloria. But it, you know what I mean? It, it just uh, it allows you to live out that fantasy in a way where you can't wait to get to the next one because you really savor the moment when those became destination entertainments as opposed to the next passing thing. I had a really interesting conversation with a friend about why I dislike uh, or don't adopt binge watching TV. Mm. Mm -hmm. And he asked me why. And I said, because I do not relish or savor or anticipate the next show or the next movie. It's just about driving through content and being able to talk about it around a water cooler for about five minutes to see who knows more about this entire block of 13 shows that was dropped. Where's the appreciation in that? There is none. So in 1960, was it four yeah. when Dr. No came out? Uh, 62, Dr. 62. No came out, yeah. So, and then you had these two or three year periods in between where the only time that you were able to see it was on the big screen and you're waiting for that tagline, James Bond will return in From Russia with Love or Goldfinger or Thunderball, right? Yeah. And you're waiting for those moments. And as you grew with these films as the audience, you grew as a person because you emulated the James Bond lifestyle. I want to learn more about culture, about travel, about fashion, about yeah. cars, about drinking alcohol properly. <laughs> right. And, and look, to reiterate, that this is not to romanticize or, or glorify what is also a troubled time, and there are troubling themes in those stories as well, and certainly the misogyny is a number one right there. But what I'm hoping that I'm making a case for is just to say that the way that we consumed our culture is different. The the expectation of that pop culture is different. And I kind of miss the idea, like, look, every now and then we get gasps of it again. Uh, I think that we're kind of living in a golden age of TV again now that's been sustaining itself for the last, you know, five to 10 years or so. There's a lot of great stuff because of the big TV and streaming marketplace where there are things that are geared toward an adult audience that are a little deeper and more thoughtful than what would just be, you know, the most popular and most common form, which was the sitcom 30 Mm -hmm. years ago. So, so that does things like this do come in waves. They do come in cycles. 
I just happen to really be fascinated by this particular time and, and what this says about the people who wanted this type of entertainment and what was being said through that entertainment. There's something that you mentioned earlier that I, I want to pick up on as well, just very briefly, and that's that this character idea of Bond knowing everything and being an expert on everything. Mm-hmm. This is one of those times where that character trait in Bashir works for him. With uh, the rubies, with the stones. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's something that was an annoying thing about Bashir before that he was socially awkward and, and just oh, sort of see, the, the know-it-all. Mm-hmm. But but here, in order to play this game, in order to be this character, he's got to be good at things. He's got to mm-hmm. be smart about things. And it was this running gag about his social awkwardness. But here it actually works. And again, this is something that we all thought was cool about Bond is that, yeah, it might have been a little weird, it might have been a little annoying, but they always played it just right. It was cool that he knew more than his boss did about the proper wine to serve with that meal. Mm -hmm. It was cool that he knew more about metallurgy (laughs) than the other guy. And it's like this celebration of expertise, it's like, yeah, that's another awesome thing, is that our hero is super intelligent, about a wide variety of topics. And that's I think that, something to aspire to. That that plays really well into kind of the escapist philosophy or escapism of this entertainment because you want to be able to project like your your desires through this character in in such a way. You're not not, you know, slapping around women or anything like that or of being course, misogynistic, yeah. but you want to be able to walk taller. You want to be able to talk about different topics on a very educated and very detailed level. That That's something to aspire to, to be intelligent, to be mannerful, you know, to have a certain sense of pride in who you are, how you dress, how you walk, how you talk, how you speak. And I, I think that Mimi Rogers said this in, in Austin Powers, where she was describing why people were infatuated with Austin Powers is because women loved him and men want to be him. Right. Right. And that was, again, part of that escapist type of entertainment of the time. Yeah. And and it is fantasy, but our fantasies reveal something about ourselves. Speaking of fantasy, this is another theme that I want to talk about here. And and that's something that really fascinated me the more I watched this. And that's just thinking a little deeper about a relationship with and our need for games and for entertainment and for escape. We talked about all this on Mission Log before with uh, Shore Leave, uh, of course, in the original series. The crew beams down to a planet where their fantasies come to life, but these are manufactured by the gamekeepers who are basically just there to provide this purpose for, for whoever comes upon the planet. And there wasn't too deep of a message there other than the more complex the mind, the deeper the need for play, which mm-hmm. I think we can all kind of wrap our heads around. But there's something even more interesting here about the holodeck. (laughs) So it's this natural extension of where we are with gaming and with entertainment. It's engaging the mind and the body and, and fantasy absolutely runs freely here. Speaking of adult themes, I want to talk a little bit about holodecks and sex. This episode, and certainly there are references to sex on the holodeck before. Many but way. I think in this episode, it really just drives home that it's part of the fabric of the holodeck experience. And I I wonder if it's just another way for Star Trek to sort of say to the audience, get over it. 
get over the the fact that the the fantasies that that people have uh, that they they want to explore all of these areas of their lives. Star Trek rarely goes deeply into human sexuality, but every now and then they sort of drop hints mm-hmm. about where we could or should be in the future. And in this particular program, sex is just as much a part of it as the game, as the locations, as the drama. It's just baked into it. So I, I don't know if if that's an intentional statement on the part of uh, the people who wrote and crafted this episode. But it seems like, again, after seven years of TNG and three plus years of Deep Space Nine, they're just like, yeah, that that's this is all human experience. Humans in the ones that we're following are living out these experiences in the holodeck. I think that's why Garrick inserting himself into this into this uh, storyline was so fascinating because he's looking at things from a completely non-human perspective. Like yeah. he says, the gaudy decorations, like this is what you think a, a, a spy does. You know, all of these, uh, all of these different philosophies of how Bashir is interpreting history, the history of the spy genre, and how he's embracing that into something that he just wants to act out because, like you said, he's not very socially able He's very socially awkward, especially with women, especially with women that he cares for or wants to, Mm -hmm. you know, interact with. But as a gamer, I told you this before, as a gamer, there's something about tapping into that that is so primal because originally when, you know, when there weren't as many technological advances in entertainment, it was storytelling. It was sitting around a fire and telling the spinning the, the tall tale. There's a reason why the, the Scandinavian Kalevala still exists in song form. It's because it's the oldest recorded existing performed entertainment song of a historical culture. Yeah. There's there's prominence with that. And that kind of spins into let's say Dungeons and Dragons. There's a reason why people play these games. They want to get out of their daily life. I've worked in the same place for twenty years. I know every crack in every wall and every hallway. <laughs> I know the ins and outs of the building. I know when the carpet needs to get fixed. I know when the lights mm-hmm. need to get changed. But think about that now on a starship or a space station. Yeah. Especially a starship where the, the, the crew quarters are so confined and so are the, the, the walkways and the Jeffries tubes and things of that nature. You need to go away from that space into something a little bit more healthier so that your brain can exercise its ability to create well, so that, that kind of leads me to this question then. So in the 24th century, as posited by Star Trek, do we need movies or or what looks like a video game today or even books? Because books seem to be kind of a niche industry. Like, yeah, you, you have some on pads every now and then. But really, the, the holodeck becomes something very different where it is the movie. It is the story. They call this a hollow novel. You know, you could imagine that somebody, quote unquote, wrote this based on the influence of the Ian Fleming books, but also every other James Bond and spy thing that that came down the road after it, is that sort of combination of art form, but game and mental and physical exercise, is that sort of the the ultimate art form for them in the 24th century? You know, and, and if it is, what does our collective entertainment experience look like 
because on the Enterprise D, it was pretty boring. They would sit around and listen to a uh, classical music concert that nobody seemed very interested in, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know. But this, this is much more exciting. It really depends on how, how that stimulus affects you. And here's a really good point. I love audiobooks. Love them. I love them maybe more than some TV because, mm-hmm. especially well-produced audiobooks, because you have fantastic voice acting, great production value. You have uh, original soundtracks, original scores. You have sound effects, an entire production. And then you also have the book version of it, which is a completely different experience in and of itself. It depends on what you want to get out of that experience because you can let your imagination you know, fill in the blanks or you can let something actually fill in the blanks in a different way. Say Picard. Picard probably doesn't enjoy holodecks as much as he loves reading because yeah. reading exercises his mind in a completely different way. There's a, I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and there was an episode where one woman loves working with computers, and Giles the librarian loves working with books. And she says, why? And he says, because they smell. They have a very distinct smell. Every single one of the books that I have, I know exactly where I was, when I bought it, how old it is, just from the smell of the leather, the mildew, the age of the paper, the ink, mm-hmm. there's a different tactile and sensational way that people digest information. Some people love it completely 100% in real time like a VR game. Some people can't stand that type of entertainment. and They would rather have a printed page even if it's not on a pad. They want a physical book printed page to read. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't know if you remember this or not. Uh, Roger Ebert about 10 years ago, I think it was in 2010, might have been right before that, um, he raised a lot of ire (laughs) by attacking video games. You know, video games are not art. And at the time, when I read that, I didn't entirely disagree. But here's the thing, I'm not a gamer. Mm -hmm. I watch this, I watch Armand Bashir, and I know how I respond to spy genre films and stories. And they're not all art, but but they are in some way, you know, they, they can be. I wonder how a hypothetical Roger Ebert or like me taking his side in that argument would feel about a hollow suite essentially doing a James Bond novel where you're, you're getting the action, the drama, uh, the intrigue, but instead of sitting and passively watching it on a screen, you're actually in it. Now, you may be terrible at playing it just because you have different strengths that you, you bring to whatever you do. But now what you get out of an artistic experience, the emotion, the drama, et cetera, uh, is that much more real and that much more acute? Or do we still need that sort of level of separation? This is like, no, 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 this, that's something that's happening on a screen, even though it can emotionally affect me. I don't need to actually feel it and be in it for it to be valid. That's a really good point because I am a gamer. I've been gaming mm. my entire life, you know, going all the way to, you know, the Atari, Atari 2600, ColecoVision, Intellivision, all of those game platforms up until this point, up until now, because I still play World of Warcraft, Star Wars, The Old Republic. But why? Why do I play these games? I don't really participate in them in that way. I don't hold a lightsaber physically in my hand or swing a giant sword or fight dragons. But there's something about the ability to just to absorb the information and to live out a certain fantasy that I would never live out. Obviously, I'm never going to ever fight a giant lich king or ever fight another Jedi Knight or a Sith Lord. But 
they, it really just depends on what speaks to you, right? I, I can't read Shakespeare for enjoyment. I don't get anything out of it. Obviously, he is one of the greatest, arguably one of the greatest writers in, in history, but it doesn't speak to me. But playing a video game does because it just speaks to a part of my brain that's wired differently than other people. And I think that's fine. So if you're in the holodeck and you just don't get it, like, why am I here? This just does nothing for me. Like Garrick, like this just mm-hmm. does nothing for me. That makes no sense to me at all. But put him in a situation where he's using it as a training tool for the Obsidian Order. Yeah, of course it would speak to him. You know, very much like the training sequence that, that they were doing on uh, Chain of Command 1 and 2. You know, with with the caves and trying to make better time right. and trying to navigate their their mission, so there are all different forms of entertainment that scratch that that lizard part of your brain that allows you to enjoy that experience. And it's always different for everybody. The more opportunities for people to be able to do that and to enrich their lives, I think the better. Good job, agents. Now, I assume you'll be opening a bottle of 54 Lafitte Rothschild to celebrate? Not so fast. There is still a little matter of morals, meanings, and messages that need your attention. Well, Norman, in the tradition of spy genre films, uh, we've done our long monologues. (laughs) So now, it's time to get to the end and uh, see who lives and who dies. No, 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 it's not that kind of a show. But what we do at the end is we figure out if the whole thing holds up and what was the message if there was one in there. So, uh, Norman, our man Bashir, this light, fluffy piece of entertainment, does it hold up? I'm going to answer your question with a question. Okay much like the spy genre that we're talking about. Does the episode hold up? I think the big question is, does it hold up as a very good episode of Deep Space Nine? Or does it hold up as a very good escapist amalgamation or fusion of our favorite fandoms, in this case, Star Trek and James Bond, or specifically the 1960s era of the spy genre? Would this have been a good episode for people who obviously like Star Trek, or they wouldn't be watching Deep Space Nine, but they don't care for the Bond era of their spy thriller fandom because mm. not everyone enjoys that era. They might enjoy today's era. They might enjoy the 1980s, 1990s version of it. But this was specifically set in that very beginning of the spy culture. Sometimes those references are just lost on people like Garrick. Yeah, right. But you have Garrick there as sort of the stand-in for the audience who doesn't get this period. So that that's an interesting choice to have him there as the the audience character as the stand-in. It's a really good question. This is out of step for what we get out of DS9. This is an episode that could have very comfortably fit on TNG if they were to do another holodeck gone wrong episode. You could really plant it just about anywhere, but they happened to do this one on DS9 and decided to not do the heavy, brooding political intrigue of the week <laughs> on, uh, mm-hmm. on this one. So it hold, for me, I think it holds up because it's entertaining. It is, look, I actually like holodeck episodes. I like to see our characters do something out of step. So just for a breath of fresh air, a moment of fun, I think it holds up that way. Because presumably you're already invested in the characters who are there. You're already enjoying them. You just get to see them sort of push the envelope a little bit more in this. 
I would like to think that even if somebody is not a fan of this period or the, the spy film genre, that they still would enjoy the fact that, you know, Garrick is there pointing out all the things that are wrong with this, that are wrong with this period, that that are sort of the, the very dated aspects of this. He's sort of speaking for them at that point. But honestly, if you're just not into it, you're just not into it. So it's a little tough to say. Now, from a production point of view, it is very well made. The set pieces are great. The action is good. You know, obviously, it's not going to be on the scale of an actual James Bond film, but it's very good. And I think the acting is solid when you've got actors doing things that are meant to be a little off, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. particularly with Nana doing her uh, Russian accent. It's hilarious. But I will say this, and I know it's an unpopular opinion, but I've said it before and I'm not afraid to say it again. I find that Avery Brooks is a very peculiar actor. And I'll just I'll I'll use that word for it. Peculiar, as Doctor Noah, that is even more pronounced, and I mm-hmm. don't really know what to make of that. I was going to ask you, mm-hmm. with all of the the alternate personalities that they inhabited, who do you think performed their character the best? Ooh, honestly, I think I I would say it comes down to either Worf or O'Brien. O'Brien doesn't have enough to do other than just be the heavy. With Worf, there is a bit more going on as Duchamp. Yeah, I, I yeah. you know, he, he didn't he didn't have to stretch himself a whole lot. He still got to be stern with uh, with Cisco as or or Avery as Cisco as Doctor Noah. There's layer upon layer there, but for some reason, it just felt false to me. Whereas with Nana as Kira, as Anna, it felt off, but it felt right for it to be off. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. What what about you? I mean, do you have a strong feeling one way or the other about any of them? Actually, I really liked Avery Brooks as Dr. Noah, but for reasons that are probably unpopular. It wasn't because he was acting the part well, I think it's because he, I feel that he was purposefully overacting the part because that's what a villain in James Bond would be like based on, I think, this hollow novel's interpretation of this epic world-dominating, ending-destroying villain. Yeah. Now, I know there are subtleties with, you know, your characters like like uh, Stromberg and especially with Hugo Drox, you know, wanted to you know, create the Genesis shuttle and all that kind of stuff. But it, it, it kind of like smacks of the Dr. Evil type of villain, you know, yeah. where he just wants world domination. He's going to give his soliloquy. It doesn't matter who's listening or who's going to try and take him out because he knows in the end he's going to win. That's why he's going to do his ha ha ha. I'm going to tell you everything because right. you're, there's no way that you can stop me. So I kind of liked that he was playing at overdoing the part. Yeah. Yeah, I I know that that's what they're going for, but for whatever reason, it didn't land with me. And as sinister and kind of creating the mold of the villain, like a Donald Pleasance was in You Only Live Twice, there's still a subtlety to what he's doing. You know, that, yeah. that quiet, cool with petting the cat stuff like that. And and even Strongberg or Drax, you know, Drax is giving these orders to kill somebody very quietly 
and uh, with a lot of control. And you don't really see him lose it until the end, which they, they actually try to build that a bit with Dr. Noah in this. But it, for whatever reason, it still, it just, it fell a little flat for me. But, you know, look, overall, I know that I am going to love this episode of DS9 no matter what, because it speaks to two fandoms that are very near and dear to me. And it's just a well-produced show. Just from a, a technical and production point of view, it is very well made. But you kind of have to accept, all right, look, we're just putting the brakes on DS9 for now. <laughs> and we're going to do this hollow novel story. And then we'll have DS9 again later. That, that yeah. you really have to accept that going into it. So that, that is the way that it, it holds up if you're not specifically a fan of, of these genres. But look, we, we talked about how this was just a lot of fun for everybody involved. Are there morals, meanings, messages to be mined out of this? Well, the one that I took away, and it came at the very end, was uh, the short conversation that Garrick and Bashir had about entertainment and gaming, like you brought up. Garrick says, you save the day by destroying the world. And Bashir responds, I bet they didn't teach you that at the Obsidian Order. And Garrick said... No, no, there was a great deal they didn't teach me, like the value of a good game of chance or how indulging in fantasy keeps the mind creative. And that brings me back to Starship Down when Quark and Hannock were having their philosophical approach to disarming the torpedo because it's about taking that risk and feeling the thrill of being alive when you're taking that chance. Is it going to work? Is it not going to work? But at that moment... You are being your most creative to find the fastest solution to a life-threatening problem. And I think that that's where Garrick saw a little bit of inspiration from Bashir because Bashir had to think quickly. And he also gained points by shooting Garrick in the neck yeah. because <laughs> right. that was something that it was out of his character. Yeah. But maybe, maybe this program brought that out of Bashir's character for the better. Yeah. A little bit of ruthlessness. Yeah. So I, I really liked that moment. I really think that that's kind of like where where I came away with the, the deepest meaning of that, that these entertainments in some way is going to inform you at the deepest level in your subconscious and how you're going to be able to draw inspiration from that. Well, I mean, I think for me, you know, I, I mentioned shore leave before. I, I don't think my opinion there changes to say that it, it's interesting to see this taken to the nth degree. The more complex the mind, the greater the need for play. Uh, we all need fantasy and escape and play. And this is this future projected, but maybe not even that that far off from where we sit now, a uh, way that we get to have entertainment in the future. So... It's interesting. It's a game, but it's intellectually stimulating and it's fun. Kind of wondered as we got toward the end there uh, with, with Garrick trying to end the game, he says, you know, sometimes the odds are against you and the only reasonable course of action is to quit. That's what Garrick says. But morally, we know that Bashir is the hero and he's driven by principle and loyalty. And that is not an option for him to simply walk away. And there is this lesson here that in the face of really a lesson for Garrick, that in the face of risk, one should act selflessly. But that might just be the difference in Bashir's values and Garrick's values. <laughs> you know, I would hope that we would lean toward uh, Bashir in learning that lesson. 
Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. The Roddenberry Podcast Network can be found at podcast.roddenberry.com, including Mission Log, Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. Shabam! If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. For more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. And finally, we would like to thank the United Network Command for Law and Enforcement, without whose assistance this program would not be possible. On the next Mission Log, Homefront and Paradise Lost. This podcast will self-destruct in five, four, three, two... Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.